0: Hey everyone, Nathan here. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up. This episode is mostly normal. Most of the swear words are bleeped out. We swear more than we should, especially me. I think I'm the out of the three of us. But in the episode, Michael tells a very powerful story about his personal history with education. And there is a word that we're all far too familiar with that he uses a few times in that story. And we thought it was important that we kept that word in unbleeped to keep that story intact. So just be aware that there is a very bad word that Michael is allowed to use and none of the rest of us are. So enjoy Welcome to Dead Source, your home for shapes and colors. My name's Nathan, your most homeroom host.
1: <laughs> My name is Andy, your educational host.
2: And I'm Pat, your didactic host. And uh, today is a very special episode. We have two guests on today. We have Michael Dixon, who has his MS in Education from the University of Dayton. In school counseling, B.A. from Wittenberg University in sociology and math, and he is a public school math teacher and guidance counselor. Hello, Michael. Hello.
0: Already friend of the pod, for that matter, too.
2: Yes, we brought on Michael before. It's nice to have you back. We also have Margaret Nash, who has a Ph.D. and an M.A. in educational policy studies from the University of Wisconsin bachelor of philosophy in interdisciplinary studies from Miami University professor of history of US education at University of California Riverside and author of Women's Education in the United States 1780 to 1840 and Women's Higher Education in the United States new historical perspectives welcome thank you for being with us
3: thanks my pleasure
0: and you're about an hour and a half away from being a friend of the pod too so Just mind your P's and Q's.
3: I'll try to behave. I'll try to live up to the standards you guys have set. Well, okay. Yeah.
2: Live down to anyway. Yeah. But before we get started, um, I wanted to ask you guys, how's your week going?
1: My week's been pretty pretty good. Um, I'm gearing up to to start the new job, and I'm pretty excited about that. But I've also been... Um, kind of re-getting back into cooking we have a lot more kind of from scratch ingredients and so lately anyway I've been doing a lot more like actually cooking rather than what can I whip together in 30 seconds and shove down my gullet (laughs) so that's nice I think I have a
0: relatively short one uh Sarah hates our couch like hates it (laughs) like and i will say she's the one who picked it out like 10 years ago so it's not on me necessarily but um so we we went out and we went uh furniture shopping a couple of weeks ago and we've been doing it like we we started furniture shopping at the beginning of the pandemic and then had other priorities than to replace our crappy crappy couch so finally we uh went out and socially distanced from the salesman and stuff like that and and bought a new sectional couch. And that was two weeks ago and they said, uh you'll have it in sixteen to twenty four (laughs) weeks. So we were like, Whoa. All right, well we'll like we'll forget that we ordered a new couch and six months from now we'll have it. And they called us a week later and were like, Your couch is in. So (laughs) I have spent uh I spent a chunk of yesterday because our old couch is also too big to fit through normal doors. So I had to uh, take, there's like a, there's the cushy top part, and then there's the wooden bottom frame. And I had to take all the wooden frames off. And of course, it's been there for 10 years. And so all the screws are like bolted in place. And it was really hard. So I spent all day yesterday sort of dragging my couch out to the garage. So that way we can have the city come pick it up. And now we're couchless for a little bit. So it's really weird. But my living room does look way better, bigger than normal. So I'm happy about that. Seems like the
2: low estimate should not have been 16 weeks.
0: No, no, it was one. It was one. So it's coming on Thursday.
1: Okay, but they weren't going to say somewhere in the next year, you'll get your couch. (laughs) (laughs) It
0: it would have been nice. Like somewhere between one week and six months, you can expect your new couch. (laughs) Didn't seem like a good idea either.
1: Are you sure they didn't say like 16 to 24 business days? <laughs> they did not. Because that is a lot to overshoot.
2: Yeah. Uh, my week's pretty good. So congratulations to my mom, Kathy. She has just retired as hey! a nurse from university hospitals. And they sent her off. They had a party. We got to join on Zoom, me and my sisters, although we couldn't be there, unfortunately. But good for her. And... She had really been kind of in the line of fire with the COVID stuff, so I'm glad that there's a vaccine that's rolling out, and I'm kind of glad that she was able to retire, um, so I'm
4: pretty happy for her.
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
4: That's great. Speaking of retirement, I'm excited that I'm retiring this year. Oh, <laughs> oh nice. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, 38 years.
5: Wow.
4: So, So I'm excited. I've been Rethinking, you know, what's next in my life, what's my next career, what do I want to do other than just being a slug. <laughs> in the midst of chilling, my uh, my daughter, who has a uh, bearded dragon, he escaped somehow. He just disappeared one day about three months ago. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, he just appeared again in the middle <laughs> of her room. Did he look really? hard? Well, he he was a little sluggish, had a tiny bit of tail rot, hibernating, and hadn't been eating or drinking anything. But you know, I took mm-hmm. him to the vet. That was an interesting ordeal finding a vet for a bearded dragon here in Cleveland, <laughs> and taking him to the vet and having to sit out in the car and have them come get it and uh, all that hoo-ha. But he's he's all well and good now.
2: That That's okay. Yeah.
4: yeah.
2: That's a long time to go without food or water.
4: Yeah, I read up on it. They said they can go two or three months without food or water in hibernation. Wow. Who knew?
1: That's wild. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, um, I was listening to something recently about how about bears hibernating, and that they they just recycle the food in their body. Their body just sort of re I guess digests the same food over and over again. Gross. Gross. Yeah, it does, does sound, sound pretty gross. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it's sort of the same, because bearded dragons are not large. No. Where, you know, a bear, gross. like, you see the pictures of the bears, like, fattening up for the winter, and they have, like, a fat bear contest where people try and get pictures of, of bears getting ready to hibernate. They Fascinating. Are, I, I like bears. but um,
0: <laughs> uh, Maggie, what, how was your week? You have any anything, and you can go
3: back as far as you want. Okay, thanks. I've been getting back into yoga, which I used to do long ago and haven't done for a while. And mm-hmm. of course, it's pandemic, so it's all virtual. But um, but it just feels so good. I just am really glad that I'm doing it. That's fantastic. So a shout out nice. to yoga.
2: Well, so today um, we're talking about educational barriers. How access to and the content of education in the United States intersect with Blacks and women in America.
1: I kind of stumbled across a phrasing that I liked today, which is how education has been wielded as a tool of oppression in this country. And that's kind of what I really wanted to focus on. So I read your book.
3: Which you highly recommend, right? Right.
1: Yes, I do highly <laughs> recommend it. was really very good, very informative
3: and it was short.
1: Short, really but short but densely um densely packed with information, but it read, it read quickly. I'm a slow reader. I take a long time to read, but it went very quickly. It was very easy to read.
3: Um I really like what you just said about um that education has been a tool of oppression. And yet what's also true is that education can be liberatory, that when people are kept from getting an education, that's oppressive too. And yet the actual education that people get could also be oppressive. Both things can be true. So I think for me, one of the important ways of slicing all of this is to is to think, remember that education isn't just one thing that it serves different functions for different people at different times. The issues of access aren't always about who gets education and who doesn't. Sometimes it's more a question of who gets what kind of education and for what purpose and who gets what other kinds of education.
1: Hmm. The argument around how women were being educated around the the formation of the country in those early years you talk about in your book about this, the, that the predominant theory behind how women's education was being approached was this separate spheres kind of idea that men had this sphere and women had that sphere. But you're, a lot of the stuff in your book refutes that. You you break down how that wasn't really true, that there, they weren't educating women very differently from how they were educating men, but also that... There's all these other reasons why the push for, for women getting education happened. And, and one of the ones that just, I mean, you, you point out several times that it gets overlooked by most historians is just that desire to learn at all. And people just sort of dismiss that as, as negligible. I don't really have a question here exactly, but um, <laughs> yeah. you know, can, can you talk a little bit about some of that?
3: Yeah, I think at the time that I wrote that book, which is, what gosh, more than 10 years ago now already.
1: 15 years ago.
3: <laughs> yeah, 15 years ago, long ago. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, at that point, historians hadn't really talked much about women's own pursuit of knowledge and for what purposes. And there were practical purposes for education and that both men and women wanted this for Women. It wasn't as though all men were opposed and women had to fight to get it, and that's part of the the point of my book is that that this is all really very race and class based. That it's my argument about the similarity of men's and women's education in the early republic, so eighteen twenty to eighteen forty, is really only true for the white middle classes. Elite white education was something different. Poor education for poor of any color, was virtually non-existent. And the white middle class, because the the concept of a middle class was really just emerging in the 1820s. And so this group was trying to create a class consciousness. And so they are de- defining themselves against wealthy whites, poor whites, and mm. against people of color. And so they're trying to create this common culture, a common language, a common experience for their own group. And therefore for, for them at that time, it was more important to differentiate themselves as a class, mm. a raced class against other classes and races than it was to differentiate men from women in the same class. So for those kinds of reasons, men's and women's education was pretty similar. I think it would be helpful also, though, to be thinking about what middle class meant in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. It doesn't really have the same meaning as it does today. We're talking modest people. We're talking farmers, the daughters of farmers. The the women who I write about in my book are farmers' daughters, shopkeepers' daughters, and I don't mean mega stores. There aren't mega stores. These are just little mom-and-pop stores So it's, it's not highfalutin people. It's common average people off the farm is what was part of the middling classes, because they weren't the dirt poor people, and they weren't enslaved. So that made them middling classes. So it just doesn't have quite the same meaning that we have today. I mean, don't think, you know, the suburban housewife kind of thing. I also, can I also, I just add about, there's also this misconception that higher education for men was only for the elite in the early Republic. And that's not entirely true either because the really wealthy didn't need to have a college education to maintain their wealth or they mm-hmm. wouldn't be going to college. They'd have private tutors or they would send their sons um, overseas to Europe for their education. So when you think about Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth in the, early Republican antebellum era, the men who are going are usually more in the middling classes or even or even more poor. There are all kinds of stories about, for instance, when the first factories opened up in New England, it was young women workers, again off the farms, who would come into these factories. And many of them were working in order to send their brothers just to college um so that they didn't come from families that had wealth or many of the less well off men who went to harvard and yale and those other other institutions were not well off and would go to school for a term and then go teach at a country school for a term and they would take years for them to get their college education or some of them who were going to become ministers would be sponsored by their town by their congregation would have scholarships for them. So this notion that we have that everybody who went to college in the early Republic or antebellum period, the men who went to college were all wealthy is really not true. And that kind of then we can apply that to white women also that the the most elite don't really need that kind of thing very much. It's the people who still have to prove themselves and have to uh, make a living are the people who are more driven to college in a lot of ways.
2: That was interesting. Well I wanna get I wanna get Michael in on this. So black education in the eighteen hundreds, there were colleges that existed that educated African Americans since the later end of the eighteen hundreds. I'm looking at Morehouse College, Tuskegee, Howard, but we're still looking at a segregated period of education did you have any thoughts on like the the 1800s and education
4: certainly the uh it's funny that this came up today because my wife and i in honor of a great loss of cicely tyson we decided to watch uh the autobiography of miss jane Pittman last night and you know as many of those movies do uh you know you get angry you get frustrated and you can't go outside of the house for a while for fear of wanting to hurt somebody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, some things you just kind of forget until it comes again to light. For instance, uh, you forget that, you know, right after slavery, people were still being killed, shot, lynched, everything, for even being taught to read. They did not want black people to be educated. You know, and, and seeing that, you know, put into a movie, though it was not based on a real person, the events were based on actual events. It, it's horrifying just to see people getting killed just for wanting to be educated. People would try to start schools to teach, uh, black folks right out of slavery how to read. And again, they would get killed. You're talking about the 1800s. I want to move a little. Into the early 1900s, so my mother was part of the Great Black Migration to the North. My mother was born in rural Louisiana in 1917, so she grew up in a, a one-room schoolhouse outside of Boyce, Louisiana. It was like Little House on the Prairie. I mean, you guys are probably too young to remember Little House on the Prairie, but uh, oh no, you no, remember I, it? Okay, yeah,
0: I grew up in Little
4: House. Okay. So it it was a one-room schoolhouse. It's called on Magnet Hill where everybody kindergarten through 7th well, they didn't have kindergarten first through seventh grade, uh, had one teacher and they all learned what past seventh grade. That was it for the education of black people because in order to go past seventh grade, you had to go into town on the bus. And of course, black kids could not get on the bus. So. Seventh grade was it for their education. And it was just just amazing when I hear the stories my mother, my aunts and uncles would tell me about what they had to go through, even just to learn to read, write, get an education. Uh my father could not read and write. Uh he might have gone through second grade maybe, but he was until he met my mom, he was signing an X on his check every week she taught about how to write his name so again we're talking about people who were born in 1917 and 1921 so it was it was always a fight for us to get an education because we know that education is the key to the future and the uh, ruling class did not want us to be any part of a power structure in the future
2: well and i would like to note on that like that's not even that long ago like. That's basically a hundred years ago, like that's nothing in right. terms of history, so like very, very recent um
4: that that oppression was was still occurring and I, we're talking my parents and I don't think I'm that old,
1: thinking about kind of this juxtaposition, I mean, the country was founded on the idea that all men are created equal, all people are created equal, right uh in Nah, I mean we say that I don't think that i don't, I think even to put those words in the the founders' <laughs> mouths is not is inappropriate because right. they didn't mean that, but the, right i mean to to say you know to say that these are our ideals of you know every person is a valuable person, and to see that I mean it took two hundred years to hit the civil rights movement. Right, I mean, and 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 what was it? 1963, I think, that the first school was desegregated in America. Is that right? 63,
4: 64. It was either 63 or 65. No,
3: the first school was desegregated. No. What do you mean by the first school being desegregated? Uh, Br-
4: Brown, Brown versus
2: Board of Education. That was 54, but oh, that wasn't 54. when the first.
3: Yeah. yeah, that's 50. That wasn't when the first school was desegregated. That's when. The federal government said you cannot continue to segregate by race.
4: And then you still had people like, oh my gosh, what's the name? It was Bill Wallace who stood. George
5: Wallace. Oh. George Wallace Thank standing you. in Thank the you. schoolhouse door. outside the door, yeah. hands
4: folded, like these are not coming in my school. Federal law or not? Yeah, it
1: all you really know,
4: didn't mean anything
1: for us to take two hundred years to just actively say, you know, we should probably think about actually living by the ideals on which we were founded, is just frustrating, I guess. I don't know. Act
4: 100. We're talking 1865, then 1865 when the Civil Rights Act was signed.
1: We have have these high ideals as Americans that, and and they've been sort of there in some form since the founding of the country, but we don't practice those generally speaking
4: well not for all people but you got to go back to what many of the founding fathers and people of their era considered people we weren't considered people you know in slavery we were treated like not even as well as their cattle and, and their animals mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. men were you know what two steps behind and to the left of men you wouldn't dare consider yourself equal as a woman so, you know, when they said all people are equal, what they really meant was all white men.
3: Mm-hmm. Only white men of a certain socioeconomic class also. Okay. I mean, in the founding of the country, the most white men could not vote either. Uh, it was um, a small proportion of people who could mm-hmm. vote in the, in the beginning of the country. It's all very hierarchical. You can see that if you look at state, State laws that would, so states would be setting their own voting restrictions and also their own who could run for office. And, and it's a pyramid. You can see that if you, if in a a given state, if you want to run for a state representative, you have to have um, property valued at X amount. If you want to run for the federal government in the state, you have to have a property amount worth a little bit more. And if you want to run for governor, then you have to have property at an even smaller amount. So that you not only had to be white and in most states profess a Christian religion, uh, an age requirement, but you also had to meet a wealth requirement to run for (laughs) office. And then you also did to vote. So they really did not mean that everybody was equal. They didn't. And one of the, to bring us back to education a little bit, in the 1820s, voting restrictions become more supposedly democratic. The Jacksonian era is talked about as the democratization of America. And the reason that they say that is that the property requirements for being able to vote go down in every state and eventually go away. and so that having a certain an a state of a certain value is no longer a determinant of being able to vote but what is what is is uh gender and race for instance in new jersey for the first eight or some eight or so years or maybe even longer than that uh women could vote in new jersey in the 1780s if they were not married because if you were married your husband votes for you because that's the principle of coverture that a husband is taking care of you um, but if you were widowed or single and not living with your father and you had met the property requirement as a woman, you could vote. In many states in the North, if you met the property requirement and were male and African-American, you could vote. But that's initially. In initially, it's property trumps all. But as The vote becomes more democratized, meaning when you no longer need to own a certain amount of property to be able to vote, then states put in new restrictions. And now the new restrictions are you must be white and you must be male. So where women can vote and where African-Americans can vote, those gets taken away. So in this period that historians talk about as democratization of the vote, it just means more white men can vote, but fewer of the other people who could vote before now can't. Now let me bring that back to education. That same period when voting becomes more democratized, I'm putting quote marks around that, <laughs> is also the same era as the beginning of what's called the common school, which is the foundation of our public school system. And Education then becomes linked to how you become a good citizen. If being a good citizen is linked to voting, then who is left out? So new states that are forming in the, or states that are newly setting up um, common school, public school systems, like Ohio, for instance, (laughs) by the 1850s, whereas Whatever local schools might have existed might have been coeducational, or and by race, mixed race might have been. Um, by the 1850s, it's written into law that nope, there African Americans cannot go to these schools. Um, do you know that they set up um, codes that in Ohio? I mean, Ohio was a bad state. In Ohio, in the early 19th century, if you were African American, you had to pay to live here because they said, we don't expect African-Americans to do very well here. You're going to need more policing. You're going to need help. Therefore, if you're going to live here, you have to pay in in advance in order to offset the costs that we know are going to come. Wow. Yeah.
2: Wow. Right. (laughs) That's that's my first time hearing of that.
1: Oh, no, that sounds like a pretty Ohio thing to do.
3: It's not just Ohio. Indiana is the same. Other states did that, too, in the so-called Free North.
5: Fact check. Fact check. Fact 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 check. check.
3: And
0: welcome back to Fact Check. So this goes way, way back, all the way back to 1717, when New London, Connecticut, voted to explicitly prohibit people of color, free or not, from living in their town retroactively. What we were referring to specifically here are the 1804 and 1807 Ohio Black Codes, which, among many other pretty despicable racist things, charged a bond of $500, which would be $10,380 today, for all people of color, no, that's not the term they used, entering the state. They didn't really enforce the bond, though, until 1829 when Cincinnati saw a sudden influx of black people and ordered that they would begin enforcing it immediately. And all black people in the city had thirty days to pay or leave. The white people in the city, however, were impatient and attacked Little Africa, the black ghetto, which consequently was owned by whites, burning homes and beating people. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Fact check, fact check, fact check.
3: And you know, it's all. It's all confusing because all these things coexist because in Ohio, you also have Oberlin College, which in the 1830s was biracial, multiracial, not just biracial, and coeducational. And was, a you know, Wellington and other places in, around there were stops on the Underground Railroad. So there's, there's, there are good things happening, but boy, are there bad things, too, all in the same time and place.
1: And i think I think if I'm remembering the the number correctly, I think you wrote that by the time the the start of the civil war, Oberlin had i think six black graduates
3: uh fifteen african american women fifteen
1: african american women that...
3: African american women graduate more african american men and also more african american men and women attended without graduating, and that was very common for white students in every college and institution also. Graduation just wasn't that big of a deal. You seldom needed a degree to get a job, and often having one or two years of college was plenty to get you the the whatever it was that you wanted. So lots of people would go for a year or two of college and not finish, and that just that wasn't seen as a bad thing. Andy had brought up before about the idea of um, women's education Becoming more widespread in part because women wanted the education, their desire for education. And I just wanted to bring this back to uh, African-American women. And one of my sheroes is Mariah Stewart, who in the 1830s, she was probably one of the first women in the country of any race to speak in front of mixed sex audiences Up until that point, that just wasn't done. It wasn't seen as ladylike. But but she was one of the first to do that. And her speeches and essays then got published in the Abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. And she was a strong advocate for education for African-American women. And she has my favorite quote of hers. And I don't have it in front of me, so I might not. I might not get it exactly right. If you do a fact check, you know, we will have to <laughs> have to go with it, but this is no, close enough. She asked, how long shall the fair daughters of Africa be compelled to bury their minds and talents beneath a load of iron kettles?
5: Mm. Mm.
3: Wow. Yeah.
1: Wow. That's, yeah.
5: Yeah. Wow, that's powerful.
1: Really drives the point home. Hmm.
0: So the, the value our country places on education has fluctuated over time. At the nation's founding, there was an immense drive to educate the new emerging middle class. And it fit very nicely with the Republican ideals of the time. How did our society lose that fervor for intellectualism and education? How do we make being educated like cool again?
1: What do we do?
4: Or, you know, at all. Right. Yeah, that's an amazing question. And, of course, educators today are, you know, we're tearing our hair out trying to figure out how. Um, it's different among different subgroups in the U.S. I'll never forget my first couple of years of teaching. I'm going to try to sa- say this without sounding too stereotypical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a student named Tony. Tony was Asian, specifically Chinese and his family, you know, wanted him to get ahead in terms of his math education, and they hired me to tutor him. He took algebra, one. I was his algebra one teacher, and then they wanted him to take algebra two his sophomore year, but he had to take geometry first, so they hired me to tutor him in geometry so he can um, go on algebra two sophomore year. Did a great job, he got a great Uh, test score, he went on, everything was fine. But through that whole process, they were just so enamored with me. They just were so respectful and put me up on a pedestal every time I come to the house. It was teacher sign. Ah, teacher sign is here. Oh, wow. At the end, oh, they had a big banquet for me at one point, uh, at their house. And then they knew some people who owned a restaurant and they came, this big fancy restaurant. They came and introduced me. Ah, teacher, how. I mean, it, you thought I was the king of America or something? <laughs> wow! And I found over my years that many—again, I, I hate to sound stereotypical, but these stereotypes exist for a reason. I found that many of my Asian students really value education, and early in my years of teaching, a lot of Asian uh, parents didn't want their children to mix too much, to socialize and integrate too much with uh, typical American students because they felt like they would water that fervor down. Um, and in my community, oh my gosh, it, it's so frustrating to me because I find a lot of our kids feeling having this just enough to get by mentality. Well, if I get a D, I still get the credit, right? And of course, that makes me explode when I think about, again, I I talk about my mom coming up here from the South. A lot of the Blacks came up but they were tired of picking cotton and whatever else, came up from the uh, South to the North, and education was stressed. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and everybody stressed. You have to get an education, you know, whatever your project is, whether it's a paper or whatever, this represents you, and you have to show pride in that we taught we were taught to have pride in whatever we did now that some glass ceilings have been broken and some um you know we've been allowed to move to the suburbs and things are you know a little easier for us i know we seem to have lost that fervor to get That education and I don't know how to get it back. You talk, you talk to our young people about their history. You talk, you know, you tell them about everything our foreparents have gone through. It doesn't seem to mean a lot to them. But yet there, 38 years ago, my experience with kids was very different than it is today. And of course, we can't forget social conditions, which also distract families. We have so many uh, families, especially African-American families, uh, not in Cleveland, on the West side, some Latino families, or just some poor whites who are struggling in what I call their own survival mentality. They're just trying to pay the bills. They're just trying to figure out how they're going to, you know, get food on the table, going to a teacher's conference, meeting with the teachers, sitting down with their kid, making sure their homework is done. And that, that's a luxury. They don't have the time and energy to do that anymore if they're in a so, certain socioeconomic status or mentality.
2: So so even above that, is there also like a culture of willful ignorance that's prevailing? Because like, I, you know, i I don't know... Our leaders like all throughout American history that well but I, I think I feel like in our leaders today there's like this willful ignorance this lack of curiosity and it makes me wonder is that is that a new phenomenon to to see people just like genuinely uncurious about the world
4: that, 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 that's a good question I you say funny you say that word willful ignorance i call it aggressive ignorance aggressive (laughs) it's It's like i'm dumb i'm gonna stay dumb and i'm gonna make you dumb if you try to make me undumb
1: well and and a and a strong disdain for for educated people right um
4: yes exactly
0: like i would i would love a disinterest in education instead of like pride in being ignorant which is i think what we're seeing more and more like this interest would at least be something you could deal with.
4: Right. Hmm. And I I don't know what, I don't know where it came from. I don't know why it came and how to reverse that. I I, I wish I could have an answer that I could go and have seminars and be a millionaire.
2: We're we're going to make education cool uh, on this podcast. We're going to get it started. The ball's going to roll and uh, we're going to, make education cool so
0: <laughs> have you can i ask michael have you ever tried uh turning a chair uh around backwards and then sitting in the wrong way to make kids <laughs> seem like they're cool that always seemed but, to work in those like after school movies that they had on tv funny.
4: well i you know, i will say that all of us try our best to reach our kids you know try try to be cool so, sometimes you see i have last time i was on the podcast. So I had black hair. Uh, it's a little gray, right? Now. <laughs> We're not in person with the kids. But uh, I even dye my hair sometimes to look younger to be more relatable. <laughs> but I, I think all of us are figuring out ways to be more relatable to the students. We have created a culture now, though, where I, I call it, a lot of people call it edutainment. We, one of the things that drives me crazy, I'll ask my daughter, Old school? It was boring. I want to scream. Every time kids say, it was boring. I say, this is not entertainment. This, you're not sitting there watching a movie. You're not on a video game. This is education. You don't have to do backflips and have it entertaining all the time. While, you know, I, I realize lecture is the worst form of education. We just sit there and listen to someone spot out information. You got to make it a little bit engaging, at least. But I think we've gone to the point now in education where we will try anything, entertainment, games, bribery. You know, I have my colleague in our office. She has a huge bucket of candy. Hey, can you do this? How about, if you get this work done, I'll give you some candy. And I'm like, Really? Is that what we've reduced ourselves to? Bribery?
2: Yeah, I wonder how much technology is to blame and how much, like, addiction. So, mm. um just like your reward system uh, gets out of whack from all the phones and the
4: screens and the computers. When we were, when I was growing up, my age group, we read books and we had to imagine things. We read about a tree and the meadow and this, but we had to imagine stuff. Now all you have, have to do is speak into your phone and it brings you up a video of it. You know, there's no more need for imagination and creativity. You just talk into the computer and it creates it for you. Yeah.
3: yeah. Could I offer a historical perspective a little bit? Please. 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 I think teachers have always complained about students being bored and students not taking schoolwork seriously. Another thing to factor in is that we force kids to be in school much longer now than we did. You know, it was really very recent that we forced kids to go beyond the eighth grade. None of my grandparents went beyond the eighth grade. And it really wasn't until the Depression, when there weren't jobs for kids to leave school to go do, that states started enforcing truancy kinds of things and that kids had to stay in school longer, also because of more schools... If more kids are in schools, then schools could hire more teachers and give more people more jobs, and that kids weren't competing with male heads of household for the few jobs that there were. So truancy laws really weren't enforced very much until the Depression. So in some ways, this is a very modern problem of having so many kids in school for so many days, for so many years, and that, that, I think, adds to it. But we also... Our own personal experiences notwithstanding because Michael, I know that you were an exceptional student always and that you always had this drive. <laughs> uh, yes, it's clear.
4: You're right. You're right. Uh, you're right.
3: <laughs> right. Um, but I am sure that many people your age were not. They weren't all like you. And oh, no. <laughs> right. And so we, so I, I'm just saying we shouldn't romanticize the past. I can read you blood curdling stories of teachers in the 19th century the mid 19th century who were physically attacked by students I mean, we, it's easy to have this nostalgia for oh in the good old days kids respected teachers but they didn't always and oh my gosh i just i have these these just hair raising stories about some of the things that students did to teachers starting starting with the beginning of public schools
5: um,
3: and then you also have Stories like, think about Huck Finn or, or um, uh, Tom Sawyer. That that also is a whole set of literature from the 19th century that says, book learning ain't all it's cracked up to be. And we want experience and we want common sense. And we don't want to sit in classrooms where we're forced to sit still and be quiet and all of that. And Tom Sawyer is this hero and Huck Finn are heroes. For busting out of the classroom and not being stuck in the the Mm -hmm. prissy environment of the school. There's a a book called The Boy Problem that is all about the history of, in the 19th century, of um, not being able to keep boys in school. They dropped out at much higher rates than girls did, in part because the school environment maybe was not conducive to boys having to sit still and listen. But also, boys could get jobs. They could start making money and helping support their families. There were reasonable alternatives for them to school. But you look at school reports, and it's all about how can we keep kids in school? How can we keep them from dropping out? How can we make school a place where they want to stay longer? That, that was 19th century, too.
4: Wow. <laughs> Some great, great points, Maggie. And I, I agree with you on all of that. I I and I hesitate to say this as a public school educator, but I no longer agree with compulsory education, at least up to 17. Um, maybe 12, 13 years, ago, years old, and then give them choices in terms of what to do. Do more vocational education. Do more uh, something where they don't have to sit, and I love your words, sit in this prissy classroom. Because it, it is not made for life. It's not made for boys. It's not made, a lot of our systems not made for African-Americans. It's just not made for everybody. You know, now uh, kids can get out I think at 16 under certain conditions. I remember in Springfield, Ohio, where I used to teach, I saw a lot more students leaving school at 16 because of either pregnancy or they were going off to, to do something, but it, school wasn't it for them but we do need to have other alternatives for students. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so one of my favorite jokes about this is that, you know, they never taught me how to do taxes in school, but I can tell you that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell.
1: <laughs> Something that drives me a little bit nuts whenever I read about civil rights movements of of any kind, but obviously I, I was doing a bunch of reading about this and, um, there's always this thread of like one of the main arguments for giving some group some basic civil rights is how it will benefit white middle class men by giving these people some rights an educated country is a better country and and you know these the well if we educate these women then they'll be able to go out and proselytize for the religion or um, just to
3: clarify, he, that's not what I want. <laughs> that was my no, right. I was saying what arguments were being used then.
1: <laughs> right. This is this is what what people are saying. Like in order to justify letting women be educated, it needed to be framed. And and you know, just recently this past year, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, and and she's very famous for um, a case where she presented a, a feminism case in the context of, well, men should want women to have these rights because X, I I don't remember the details It had to do with some financial laws.
0: (laughs) I remember I had to do a fact check on it during the episode where we talked about it.
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Have you already forgotten those facts? Oh, for sure. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, I mean, it's just a a sort of a, a frustrating through line of any civil rights movement to me
0: check. Andy is talking about Reed versus Reed, a landmark case where a separated married couple were fighting over administrator rights to their deceased son's estate. It was the first big Supreme Court case to address gender discrimination as a violation of equal protection and set up Ruth Bader Ginsburg to head up the new women's rights project at the ACLU. Mini fact check.
3: Well, I just, I suspect that it's pure pragmatism if you appeal to the people with power and show them that it might be to their benefit to make a change, you're more likely to be successful, I would think.
1: But also it's just really disgusting. True. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> well, it seems, um,
0: like it seems like we're all angry. Yeah, in okay. We're,
1: all right. Everyone's on board. <laughs>
0: so Andy's point that everything shouldn't be based on making it easier for cis white men to keep on doing their thing.
1: No objections to that. Okay, cool. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about some of the, some of the barriers that black people face to education. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but this, this idea of the legacy of slavery. So after, Mm -hmm. you know, the Civil War, there was, a long hundred year period, basically, of, of Jim Crow laws and, and legal um, legalized oppression, but also there were just sort of some situational, how do you say, it wasn't specifically legislation saying, well, black people can't be educated in this state. But it was things like, well, in order to get into the school, you have to live in this area, but that area won't let black people live there and stuff like that. So the sort of legacy of slavery, some is, is hard, specific legislation or whatever that you can point to, but some of it is not. Can you talk a little bit about some of that?
4: I, I can share a couple of my own personal stories. I mean, You already talked about, uh, and I talked about before, black people being killed. Because they wanted to be educated, talked about the difficulty, and you alluded to it also in terms of, you know, us being in certain neighborhoods, being able to get to certain schools to be educated. But even when we got to those schools, it could, it, it, it was troublesome. I was in, uh, growing up in Cleveland, I was in the major work program in Cleveland, which was a gifted and talented program. And, In the northeast side of Cleveland, the major work hub was the Collinwood area and the Collinwood area was still rioting back when I was in school. And because they, they were a poor Italian area, did not want us in there at all. So I was being bussed from Glenville into at the time Longfellow Elementary and Spellacy. When I got to Spellacy, um, we, we would have, they would have riots when they rioted at Collinwood. The parents would come down to spell us, and we we would have parents, parents outside of the school with bricks and chains chanting, niggers go home, niggers go home. We had to be surrounded by the police. Uh, They, they escorted us to buses, blacks on these buses, whites on those buses. They sent us to different sides of town. I mean, I had a friend one time, we missed the bus that came around for us. And we had to walk up to the regular RTA or CTS back then station, uh, bus stage, bus stop. And, uh, they started chasing us. The white kids started chasing us because again, we we're in their neighborhood. And my friend Martin, poor thing. He was a little chubby and me and my other friends were thin at the time. And we started running and we ran from 162nd near St. Clair to 152nd. Which was like the Mason Dixon line. If we got to 152nd, we were safe. But, and, and they caught Martin because he, he, he couldn't run as fast as we could. And he told us when he caught up to us, they had him up against the store window with a knife to his throat, about to slit him open like a pig. That's because he was in the wrong neighborhood. We're talking a 12 year old. So, you know, those kind of stories are repeated again and again. So when I tell my students now what we had to go through just to get an education, my family, before I went to high school, we moved to Cleveland Heights because my family did not want me to experience the riots at Collinwood because they were even worse than at the middle school. So we moved to Cleveland Heights. What we didn't know was there is an East Cleveland district of Cleveland Heights. And the realtors at the time, this was in the mid-70s, were funneling black families into Caledonia and Forest Hills area of Cleveland Heights, so we wouldn't go to Heights because they were trying to keep Heights white, white and proud. And I, I, I was so shocked. First, I went to Monticello first because Monticello had ninth grade, and then they tested me. They put me in tenth grade. Went to Heights. They looked at my address. They said, "Oh, you're you live in East Cleveland district." But that was the most god awful day of my life because even back then Shaw was well, it was not the place for me. Um and probably the reason I'm a counselor to my to this day, my counselor, Lily Drayton, God bless her soul, we still keep in touch. She put me in her car, took me out to Hawkin, the US, said this is where you belong. But then there's a money issue, but she was able to help me get a scholarship, so I ended up at Hawkin. But my issue was that the, the, the rioters, the realtors, all these people that are trying to keep me out of certain places. And, you know, all, not just me, anybody that looked like me who tried to move in these neighborhoods, tried to get an education in these places. So it didn't even have to be law. It was underhanded things that people did. Wow. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. Uh, it just, I mean, and what is, what was, when, what year was that? 60s, 70s? I mean, that's.
4: When I went, and the spellacy was 73 to 75.
1: So, I mean, well, after, 10 years after the Civil Rights Acts. I mean, not that, that, you know, what, if it takes us a hundred years to go from, well, you can't own people to we should probably <laughs> treat them like people in general. I'm, yeah, okay. He,
4: People, it back. <laughs> I understand. You got people who just don't want their kids to be in a in a school with with black folks. I remember my senior year in uh you know, the, the separate but equal thing. Because at the time, except for Collingwood, most of the schools on the east side were predominantly black, schools on the west side were predominantly white. And this separate but equal was proven wrong. The NAACP sued uh, Cleveland uh, school system and Cleveland schools lost. So, In other words, proving that the white schools on the west side got better teachers, got better books, materials, whatever, than the black schools on the east side. Mini fact check.
0: Michael is talking about Reed versus Rhodes from 1976. The Cleveland public schools were found to be violating 14th Amendment rights by intentionally segregating schools and were ordered to correct it. This was only 22 years after Brown versus Board.
2: Mini
4: fact check. So they ordered busing, court ordered busing, and started my senior year. Thank goodness I had gotten out of Cleveland schools at that time. But they had parents and I'll never forget this committee against reorganizing our kids. They were out there going nuts, turning over buses. I mean, it was absolutely insane. And you think these are the children's parents acting like this? Mm -hmm. I said, like, I just, I can't help
0: but think, like, I have no reference for that. Like, nothing. There's, There's nothing that I've gone through that remotely relates to that.
4: Even in the heights, who's supposed to be, you know, we were voted all America city at one time. We were the bastion of diversity and acceptance (laughs) and all that. Even in that, there were still, there are still a lot of issues we deal with. Biggest, one of the biggest issues is, um, the achievement gap. That, that, that's a huge issue. Black kids, white kids who are sitting right next to each other in the same class. Are getting a different education. They're having a different experience. Oh, it was a running joke. You walk into an honors or AP class. Why is it all white? The school now it's like 75, 80% black, but you go into honors or AP class. It's almost all white. You know, there's obviously an equity mm-hmm. issue going on there. I talked to some teachers. There was, there's a, uh, organization called Minority Student Achievement Network. It's a nationwide initiative to uh, deal with the achievement gap. And one of my jobs as the uh, one of the advisors is to help support students in staying in honors and AP classes. And I talk to kids, and I'd just be horrified by the stories they tell me about how the teacher treated them, how they looked at them. I had to teach, it was everything I could do not to go up to this teacher and just whoop up. <laughs> in my office literally shaking because he's so mad he says this he walked into senior walked into ap chemistry the only black kid there he walks in and the teacher says excuse me young man uh do you know where you're going uh this is ap chemistry do you know what ap means says, you know all these kinds of, oh my god can, can i see your schedule and she asked nobody else that. Not one other person. She just asked. I mean, and he knew. He was smart. He knew what it was all about. Fortunately, we had a relationship, so he knew he could come to me. So he walked out of class rather than going off on her. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, I talked him down, and I called his parents, and you know, did all the appropriate things. But the, she was bold enough to actually say what she was thinking. She's got a lot of teachers out there who, if you don't look like what they think an honors or AP student should look like. Uh-huh. They will, there's certain innuendos in their tone or certain things they would do to make you feel not welcome. So it, it, it's a really frustrating thing. It's a real issue, this achievement. yeah. I, I, I'm going to tell you one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever been told by a student. This kid was trying to get out of this AP class, and man, Mr. Dixon, it's too hard. It's too... I'm like, no, let, let's talk about the supports and the interventions we can do for you. He looks at me, perfectly serious, and said, "Mr. D, you got to understand, I'm not like these smart white kids." It's like, oh my gosh, you get so then you've got this whole issue of what I call black inferiority. We have been taught from slavery on; we have been taught. Inferiority that when we were treated less than animals to when we were treated like what three fifths of a human being through Jim Crow, through segregation. And, and for some reason, some black folks have been brainwashed into thinking because my child is sitting in class next to a white child, they're getting a better education. So we, we have it's all kind of issues. Sometimes. Black families actually do brainwash their children into thinking, I'm not quite as good. Not intentionally, but because of historical factors down through the years. I will never, ever forget the time my mother, when I graduated with my master's from the University of Dayton, um, I was real close to one of my students and his families, and they threw me my party. Rich people in this huge house in Kettering. And my mother was a day worker when she was working. She cleaned houses. I'd pulled up to the, in the driveway to this house. She looked at this house. She says, I get to go through the front door of this house. I said, yes, you get to go through as an honored guest. And she look, she sits there, keeps looking at this house and she says, I've never even cleaned a house half this big before. I mean, she, I mean, she was actually nervous about going through this house. Um, because in in her mind, again, born in 1917, rural Louisiana, she didn't think she was worthy of going into this house as a guest, and and through the front door even. So at some and she tried unintentionally to almost put that inferiority off on me, but I it didn't take. So as somehow we have got to break the, the slave mentality. We got to break these psychological chains and realize we are as good, we do deserve, and we got to fight like hell. And it's a shame we have to fight for it, but we have to fight for what's rightfully ours. Okay, I'll shut up now.
1: No, you. <laughs>
2: no, that was, that was a very powerful segment.
4: So, an,
2: another area that is just interesting to me personally is the the influence of propaganda. On the history of education and uh, particularly like the evolution and influence of propaganda, like since World War Two in textbooks and kind of how it's evolved and taken us to where we are today. Are we still living in a propaganda world uh, similar to the 1930s, 1940s? Is our propaganda better? The way that we like, you know, teach our kids to pledge allegiance to the flag, and then what's written in their textbooks—like—is—is is it still like a propaganda war, or is that changing?
4: Let the historian take that one.
3: <laughs> but could you? I guess I would like you to say more about what you mean by propaganda. Do you mean just any position?
2: So when you think about history being written by the victors, and you know the way that we teach history is in a large way influenced by our national goals the the things that we want to get out of our education system as a as a country like from the top down do you think that that's changing that has a a different influence today than it might have in 1940
1: are you talking about things like the way we say talk about George Washington as like oh the, the founder of America, but we don't really ever talk about the fact that he owned slaves and other things. Like, that. is that what you mean?
2: Yeah, like the the way that we think of ourselves as Americans, like American exceptionalism, the individual being like the base unit um, rather than the community. A, a lot of the things that you cover actually in in your essay of like forming a national identity and in part doing that through textbooks.
3: Okay. Patrick is talking about an article I wrote on where I was examining patriotism and nationalism and national identity in early American textbooks. And that's a good place to to start, I think, because your question is about what kind of national identity and national goals do we have that we can see in our textbooks? And one of the Either strengths or weaknesses, depending on how you look at it, of our educational system is that it is very state centered. We don't have national education. We don't have federal education. And states design their own curriculums and the biggest states buy the most textbooks. And what those biggest states want is what shows up in the textbooks that go everywhere. So basically California and Texas are the textbook market. And most other states are basically choosing, do they want the California model or the Texas model for for textbooks? Hmm. And the Texas model has become famous or infamous in recent years for refusing to use the words slave or slavery or enslaved person and instead talking about migrant laborers as though that's the equivalent, mm-hmm. right? Uh, wow. that has been, um, in the last couple of years in Texas, that has been a big issue. So there is still that level of, I guess I'm, I'm still not sure about the word propaganda because it could just mean so many different things to so many different people, but every textbook, has some kind of a bias, has some kind of a perspective. And if, maybe that's what you're asking about. What are the biases and perspectives in, in history textbooks today?
2: Sure. Well, I, I think you kind of answered it in saying that there isn't really a top-down national right. bias to the textbooks, so that it's more regional. But, yeah, I mean, if you could talk a little bit about well, bias. Well,
1: didn't – um. <laughs> Trump had passed or, or some something the 1776 commission yeah. that that Biden almost immediately wrote off, but it's but the whole purpose of it was to do exactly that.
0: Yeah, he called it patriotic education. I mean, I'm still pissed off about Christopher Columbus.
2: <laughs> like, like we <laughs> right. all
0: learned the wrong when we were growing up, and it's infuriating.
2: Can you tell me a little bit about Patriot Education? I'm not that familiar.
0: The 1776 commission was, uh, set up. Uh, well, first of all, it was just like a nod to his base. Cause he did it just before, like just before, uh, oh, yeah. the election happened. The the idea was to put forward education that wasn't based in reality, but was based in this, uh, American exceptionalism that you talked about. Mm-hmm. It was based on giving kids a, uh, a reason to support their country instead of telling them the
1: truth.
0: It's absurd. But Mm
1: -hmm. also to that end, I mean, the Department of Education was only formed in the, I think, early 70s. You mentioned that education and curricula and stuff was not organized on a federal level. And
3: And still isn't. There was a bureau or office of education that started in, I don't know, the 1850s or 60s. So there has been some federal agency that has looked at education but has no control over it.
1: Right. Even the Department of Education doesn't really do much. The federal Department of Education, I believe they they set some some degree of national standards, but that's pretty much it. Right.
3: Well, they they set guidelines. They give help on best practices. They can design curriculum. They can, you know, be a bully pulpit in a lot of ways. And they collect a lot of data. They are the, the National Center for Educational Statistics or something gives us incredible amount of hmm. data that's very helpful to know. But education has been, ha, there's always been this tension. You know, education isn't a, isn't a constitutionally protected right. It's not, education isn't in the constitution. It's not, nobody has a federal right to education. It's all state based. And even at that push and pull between local district level and state level control, let alone federal is intense. People, most parents, want control over the schools that their kids are in and don't care what's happening anywhere else which is a big part of the of every problem we have is that we are only looking out for Mm -hmm. most people are only looking out for their kids and not the bigger picture
1: and Mm -hmm. i mean i guess you can kind of understand that to a certain extent i mean certainly on a parental level like yeah it makes sense that you're going to pay close attention to what's going on at your kid's school and you probably have way too much else on your plate to focus much attention on the school uh, schools a couple towns over let alone across the country I mean from a practical standpoint I get it but that sort of thinking kind of puts those blinders on so you don't
3: also says that the individual is more important than the group and that's part of the problem too it says exactly. what I want and what I want from my kids is the only thing I need to pay attention to. Whereas I would hope that citizenship means being a member of a community and wanting the best for the most people. Thank instead you. Instead of that's just so looking out for ourselves. Right. Well, yeah, so I think that's, uh,
4: that's different than, and, and I think that's a cultural thing also because yeah. in in, in the European society is much more individualistic and in for instance in the African society, it's much more group based collective okay. thinking
3: and in Native American society as well, you are beholden to the to the community you are you are not just an individual you are a member of this community, and that your actions depend on
4: <laughs> well you're i think you're saying you're accountable you're you yes. Know- just you, you represent your family. You yes. represent the whole community.
3: Well, and yeah. represent and also give to. You are an integral yes. part of that. You are right. are part of creating the well being of the of the bigger community, not just yourself and your family.
1: So yeah, yeah and and you uh, conservatives talk a lot about the you know rising tide raises all ships. Wouldn't that also be true in education? I mean, the more educated the entire country is, the better off we all are, right?
0: It's 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 the whole like it's the whole school vouchers versus trying to improve the entire system. It's my kid is more important than everybody's kid. And we have this problem in like every single part of our society. It's the conservative versus liberal uh views towards politics
4: you just said a dirty word there nathan dirty word yeah well (laughs) the v word
0: yeah that's that's my uh position on or i guess my job on the podcast (laughs) if i if i don't run republicans at least once an episode i've done something wrong
2: (laughs) well to to, to get to a little more cheery subject tell me about common core how do you like common core
4: (laughs) And I, I think it's a great thing to, as a suggestion. However, I, I don't particularly appreciate someone forcing a curriculum
3: upon us. Um, See, there you go. It's, you want local <laughs> control. You <laughs> want your, your school, your principal, your teachers to decide. You don't want some district level or state level or God forbid federal level office telling you how to teach.
1: But it's about balance, sure. right? I mean, it's it. You can't just have one or the other. It has to be a blend of some federal level things and some state level things and some local things. I would think. I mean, how I else agree. do you deal with huh, with all of yes. the issues? that
4: Well, I agree uh, with. Fraud. I, I, I he, here's what I think: the, the the basis of common core is everybody, and this is a statement that I agree with. There is a basic a, a body of knowledge that everyone needs to have to optimally function in society. I strongly believe that. And if Common Core is meant to do that, wonderful. But the the, the ill of Common Core is teachers will only teach that. And what what we need a much broader spectrum than that.
1: Yeah, that is a fantastic point. Um, I'm going to pause us here because we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come right back and take us up to the modern era.
0: So, I think we want to start getting into sort of the civil rights era and moving forward. Is it fair to say that we've come a long way since Brown versus Board? And in what ways have we improved? And in what ways have we stayed the same or gotten worse? Um, does it continue to be a problem of law? And public policy, and if so, what legislation could potentially help fix those issues?
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot.
0: Why? Yeah, right. Why ask one question when you can cram eight <laughs> into one?
2: I, I think You're I wrote right. that one. I I have to apologize for the for the wordiness. I think I wrote that one.
4: That's okay, Patrick. <laughs> that you may not, you guys may not like me for parts of my answer here. No, I'm okay. As the old saying goes, we. have Come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. Laws on the books have made things better, in theory. We can you know, we can sit now next to our white peers in many situations, but we still don't have the same support and encouragement. I talked a little bit earlier about uh black inferiority what we and how we have to change our mentality. You know, some, some black people break their backs to move into certain neighborhoods because again we've been brainwashed into thinking because we sit next to, live next to white people that we're in a better place. I think in a lot of ways, integration has hurt the black community. Separate but equal, if it were really true, is not always bad. Uh, When I was growing up in Glenville area, we had the doctors, the lawyers, whatever other professionals living all around us. We got to see, um, see models of folks. Maybe you want to. oh, I want to be an engineer. Let me go talk to Mr. So-and-so down the street. But now, you know, we've been allowed to move out into the suburbs, which isn't a bad thing. But now the inner cities, have, we don't have those people around us anymore. I'll never forget at. We were talking about Lifetime earlier, Andy. Uh, I was at the gym. I was changing in the locker room. And I'd come from work and I had to take, took my tie off and everything. And these young black men, they probably in their well, late teens, uh, they looked at me and they said, oh, you must have a good job. Like, oh, well, yeah, <laughs> it's all right. He said, yeah, you in a tie and everything. I'm, they looked at me as if they had never seen another black professional. Like wow, and I mean, I could tell there was almost this, almost this longing to like get to know me or figure out what I, what I do, how to get get, get to this place where I get to wear a tie to work, and that that was kind of sad to me. So, you know, some things have gotten better, but like I said, we we've lost some things. I think in integration, we have somehow taken on some of the worst qualities of our white counterparts we talked earlier about uh european uh mentality being more individualistic and african mentality being more communal i think we as we have moved up the ladder have developed a lot more of that in individualistic uh mentality you know i'm gonna step on you i'm gonna do whatever i need to do in order to get ahead those, those kind of things have hurt us in our uh, community. And so, so what can be fixed in terms of laws? Redlining, you know, when homeowners were, were denied, uh, or potential homeowners were denied loans in certain neighborhoods, when insurance companies wouldn't insure people in certain neighborhoods. I'm still, sure that still goes on now. Uh, those kind of laws can be changed. There are people. Who, you know, undercover do things like shift school districts and do things or even build schools in certain areas. The school I used to teach at in Springfield, Ohio was built on the north side of town where the white folks lived and the, the aristocracy of Springfield lived to get away from us, to get away from not just black people, but Latinos and poor white people. And then uh, a suit came along, lawsuit. And then, uh, the school district was found, you know, to be you know, purposeful in all this uh, segregation. So a voluntary desegregation program had to be put into place. So I mean, there are things that can be done to still help us move forward, both in terms of laws and in terms of people's actions.
2: Right. And if, if I can observe, there's like, there's still a big gap between Poor neighborhoods, public schools, and wealthy neighborhoods, public schools, and I'm sure that that still disproportionately affects Black folks.
4: Oh, definitely. There, is, Cleveland Metropolitan School District, which is like eighty percent Black, is uh spends sixteen thousand dollars per pupil. Beechwood spends twenty one thousand dollars per pupil. That's almost a third more. Mm-hmm. Well, and and. that's significant andrew Andrew, the
1: the the magician magician. in 2017 the brookings institute published a paper called pulling back the curtain intra-district school spending inequality and its correlates where they find that quote on average poor and minority students receive between one to two percent more resources than non-poor or white students in their districts end quote it turns out that most schools, including the ones in wealthier areas, do in fact spend more on minority students than non-minority ones. And while it's not as much of a difference as it needs to be, it's also not negligible. They also found the best way to improve that resource allocation more would be to improve the resource distribution at the state and county levels, not on the individual district level. And let's not forget, we are talking in averages, so there's plenty of horror stories out there that don't fit these numbers. You can find the paper from the Brookings Institute, as well as a few other related articles in the doobly-doo. Back to the show.
3: Andrew, the the magician.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the main, I guess, sources for funding for education is from local property taxes and... I guess, like state or maybe federal funding based on performance, I think. So meaning Which those much. inner city underperforming schools like Cleveland public schools are restricted. They don't have much money coming in through property taxes. They're not meeting educational standards to get like additional grants. It's really how do you turn those school systems around? What do you...
4: Well, what has to be done is that it was found what, 20 plus years ago that the way we fund schools was unconstitutional. This was made known, but nothing has been done about that. Fact check,
5: fact check, fact check.
0: And welcome back to Fact Check. This is absolutely true. In fact, the Ohio Supreme Court has ruled three times in the last 11 years that it's unconstitutional. But the story goes back much further to 1979, when the Ohio Supreme Court found Ohio's school funding system adequate. Then, in 1991, DeRolf versus State of Ohio was filed to be decided three years later by Perry County Courts in the decision that overturned the 79 decision. This led to an appeal to the Fifth District Court of Appeals, which was one, overturning the previous overturning. Then, you can see how complicated this gets, That decision was appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court, which ruled once and for all that the school funding system violated the Ohio Constitution. This ruling reiterated in 2000, 2001, and 2002, and eventually the courts gave up, claiming the state officials had made a, quote, good faith effort. Anyway, let's get back to the show.
4: Fact check. Fact check. Fact check. You know, it is unfair because you happen to be born to poor parents, that you are probably going to get a lesser quality education. One third of Black children live in poverty. So that means one third of Black children are not going to get the same education as, you know, the rest of the world. I will never forget, real quick story, a young lady at my church, she was failing math. I used to be a math teacher. So I said, sure, I'll help her. I told the mother... Ask the teacher for an extra book so I can see what she was doing. But not only could she not get an extra book, she couldn't even get the book for herself to bring home because Cleveland schools were too poor to give their kids books. Aww. So yep. she ended up failing math because I I couldn't see the book to know what to tutor her on.
1: Wow. I, and I mean, my mother taught in Cleveland public schools for 30 some years, I think 32 years, something like that. I mean, I I heard plenty of those kind of horror stories firsthand as well. Um, You know, they, they want their, they give one set of books for the classroom, not for the students. There's no supplies. So teachers are spending their tiny little salaries to go out and get pencils and paper just so that these students have something to write with and on, on in a classroom. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare.
4: And it's, it's so unfair. And and then you talked about the majority of our money comes from property taxes, which like you said, if you come from a dilapidated neighborhood, housing, housing values are going down, you know, you get less property tax, but even with the state money, and this is what we, Cleveland Heights has been exceptionally hit by this, hit hard by this, this voucher system. If you don't like, uh, the way your school is performing, we're going to give you the money or at least $6,000 of the money we were spending on your kid, and you can take it to a private or parochial school. So we, are, in our district, we've lost like 8 to $9 million in funding. That's a lot of money. And a lot of these people, from the statistics that have been shared with us, a lot of these people are not people who've been in our district and been unsatisfied. A lot of them are people who Whose kids have never been in our schools.
1: And this is the kind of thing that I was talking about earlier about like legacies of slavery. I mean, basically, this is the kind of thing that slavery, even being 150 years ago or whatever, yeah, about 150 years ago or so, it's still impacting people, children today. 10 year olds are still being impacted by the effects of, of slavery because, you know, after slavery, Black people were not able to go to affluent areas. They got kind of stuck in this cycle of poverty. Mm-hmm. And how do you break the cycle? That's what makes it a cycle.
4: Yeah. You know, someone once suggested that you put all the money collected in property taxes into one pot and evenly divide it among all the school districts so that every child in Ohio gets the same amount of money, whether it's $12,000 per. Student, 15,000 per student, whatever. And of course, you know, the aristocracy wouldn't go along with that. Uh,
3: I have lots of comments if I can, but just (laughs) cut me off when it's too much. Um, (laughs) working backwards, that idea about equalizing the funding, another issue with that, aside from the fact that the wealthy people will never go along with it, is that there aren't equal needs. So that equalizing the funding Mm. still leaves impoverished schools behind. This whole idea that Michael's talking about, about the way that the state funds schools being found unconstitutional, has happened in more than half the states across the country, because this unequal funding is a big national problem. And when some states have come up with plans that distribute the property tax money a little bit more equally the poorer schools are still left behind because they have to spend their extra money getting asbestos cleaned out of their schools, doing basic repairs, putting on new roofs. Whereas the wealthier schools that get that same equal amount of money get to put theirs to arts programs and, you know, the extras. So even if you could get people to agree to redistribute the money equally, it's still not going to have equal results because we're not starting out on a level playing field.
5: Great point. Mm -hmm.
3: So that's one comment I wanted to make. (laughs) Um, Michael was talking about both the the gains and the losses from desegregation. And one of the good things about segregated schools for African-Americans, and there were lots of bad things. I am not romanticizing segregated schools because they had less funding. They had less resources. They had, you know, all kinds of, problems. But it meant that African-American kids had African-American teachers. And now very few African-American kids are in schools with African-American teachers or counselors or principals. Because when desegregation happened, one of the ways that the state system, the white controlled state system reacted to it was to say, if you're going to force us to do this, well, guess what? and ended the teaching careers and principal careers of scads of African-Americans. So this was a loss in so many ways. It was a loss to Black kids who no longer had role models, who also no longer had teachers who cared about them. Not that white teachers don't care about Black kids, but especially in the first couple of decades with desegregation, there were a lot of white teachers who were struggling to treat African American kids well in those schools. So the, so the kids lost the role models. They lost teachers and administrators who might care, who might care about them more than the white teachers. And the uh, African American communities lost a big source of uh, middle class professionalism and those incomes hmm. because all those jobs were lost also. So while desegregation is a good thing in many ways, there were a lot of costs to it also to African-American communities.
4: Maggie, you hit on a huge point. I I actually had that in my notes to talk about too, because it is is so crucial for Black kids to see somebody that looks like them, that, and like you said, not that white teachers don't care about us, but there is a relatability that like when my kids come to me, they talk about issues in their families, whether it's poverty, whether it's alcoholism, whatever. Somebody like me, I can relate to them because I can say, been there, done that. Here's how you get through it. Um, I've, I've double teamed kids sometimes with some of my white, uh, colleagues and it, it becomes very evident that we hear kids very differently. So yeah, and I, I'll have a kid come up to me and say, Oh, you smell. It used to be my dad. Now you smell like my granddad, for oh, you remind me of. My-, <laughs> my claim to fame is I was John Legend's high school counselor down in Springfield, Ohio, and he was being interviewed. And he, people have told me several times, he's referred to me and uh, what I did for him. He said how important it was for African Americans to have those role models, even though he was always a very self-driven gifted young man, it was still important, and had a father in his life, but his father did not have a college education. So it was important to him to have somebody like me in his life who could take him under his wing, who I can be like his uncle, or whatever, and, you know, do whatever for him. A lot of my students to this day in their 30s and 40s still call me unk, pops, whatever, uh, because they need that in their life. And again, I'm going to say, not that white people can't, because I have a couple of my uh teachers from Hawken that I still keep in touch with, and they were absolutely wonderful for me. Didn't have that close personal relationship like I have with a lot of my students, but they were still important to me in my life.
1: This is an interesting thing to, I guess, talk about. I know um that there is sort of generally a... I'll, use, I'll say a shortage of, of men and, and black teachers, but there's not a ton of most teachers, I think, I don't know the statistics on it, but most teachers tend to be white women uh, right now anyway. Um, but, and I, I saw some numbers that, that more women are earning PhDs than men right now. Um, that more women are, that the, the number of women professors and administrators of colleges is is on the rise. And there's, so there's this sort of this weird disconnect where K through 12 education is like for women, white women to do, but then men have dominated higher education for a long time. And I guess specifically white men, I don't really know the, the breakdown on. By race, I didn't. I didn't look into that because this question was going to be more gender oriented. But like, there's there's definitely some some shifts. There's some. There are more men going into K through twelve education in the last few years, from what I have heard. Who knows? Um,
2: Sounds like a fact check.
1: it does sound like a fact check, doesn't? It?
2: Andrew, the,
3: the, the magician. magician.
1: Okay, we're gonna break this up a few different ways. So just stick with me. We're going to start with the K-12 schools. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in 2019, men account for less than half, about 43.5% of high school teachers, but only 20% of elementary and middle school teachers. In middle and elementary schools, over 75% of teachers are white, 10% are Latinx, about 10% are black, and about 2.5% are Asian. In secondary schools, over 80% of teachers are white, 9% roughly are Latinx, about 7% are black, and about 3% are Asian. Okay, turning our attention to higher education. According to the National Center for Educational Statistics, a government website, and I am literally reading directly from it, of all full-time faculty in degree-granting post-secondary institutions in fall 2018, Some 40% were white males, 35% were white females, 7% were Asian Pacific Islander males, 5% were Asian Pacific Islander females, and 3% each were black males, black females, Hispanic males, and Hispanic females. Those who were American Indian and Alaska Native and those who were of two or more races each made up 1% or less of full-time faculty. So needless to say, that is not a very good match to the racial makeup of America. Back to the show. Andrew,
3: the, the, the magician.
1: Imbalance of who teaches what. That is not really connected to a question in particular. But um, I mean, I guess. What's up with that? Uh, yeah. The, <laughs> what, <laughs> what the what's heck? The, what's um, <laughs> the deal with that? My, I, I guess my question would be, you know, how do we is that a societal, like a social thing that, that has just sort of driven these different like groups to different professions or um is that an issue of teaching doesn't really pay very well? And so it sort of gets sloughed off to so-and-so. Why, what is, what's the deal with women, you know, gaining so much ground at, in higher education
3: levels? And, and this is a, very recent thing, the, um, women earning more PhDs. That's been in the last nine or 10 years, something like that. But there's still tremendous difference in what they earn, um, what fields they earn the degrees in. Mm. So women are still earning more of the more PhDs in English and psychology and education and those kinds of fields, and men are still much more dominant in engineering and science and math and all of those kinds of fields. Also, men are still overwhelmingly the majority of the faculty in most institutions, and especially the tenured faculty and the full professors. Um, At my institution when I left, which is the University of California at Riverside, women were about a third of, I think, maybe, maybe it was a third of full professors. I'm not sure. Maybe it's only a quarter or some nationally. Is it? You'll have to fact check this. It's somewhere around, um, a quarter to a third, maybe of full professors that are women. And then you have to look at it. What kinds of institutions? And when you look at community colleges, for instance, there's going to be more women there. When you look at the um, elite institutions and the doctoral institutions, farther up the pyramid you go, the fewer of any women and any people of color. Are Um, and what's also happening is that it's interesting that if women are starting to become the majority of PhD earners, this is happening at a time when the professoriate is in crisis because you know now um, some you have to fact check this too, but some enormous proportion of classes are taught not by uh, tenure track faculty at all, but by adjuncts. They're taught by lecturers and instructors and adjuncts who have no job security, often no benefits, and um, lower pay and higher workload. And if you look at just about any institution, the adjuncts are at the bottom of the totem pole, and you're going to find more women there. than when you get to the, the junior faculty, the you know what I mean the, the pyramid just keeps going out the pyramid keeps going up. you're going to find fewer women the farther up the ladder you go than the tenured professors, the full professors, and then you start looking at administrators so
1: so I remember reading in your book that there was this shift around the turn of the century around the in the late seventeen hundreds early eighteen hundreds that there was sort of a national push, obviously a much smaller nation, but a national push to have more women teach. And one of the big reasons for that was because men weren't really interested in teaching because the pay wasn't good enough. So what they decided to do was bring women in to teach and pay them 40% of the salary that was already not good enough for men to work. And, you know, just sort of, all right, fine, if we're going to let women do this, let's make sure that it's terrible and awful for them.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, pay. I uh, pay an opportunity has a lot to do with I don't know what in terms of African American teachers because a lot of times the education profession was one of the few professions that we could get into. But now that the ceiling, black glass ceiling has been broken, we can be doctors and lawyers and engineers who that pay a lot more money and presidents. Oh yeah, how could I forget? <laughs> So
2: I'm fixated on uh the, the STEM issue that you brought up, Margaret. So science, technology, <laughs> engineering, and math. That women are, I guess by choice, uh, not going into those fields as often at the same rates. They're earning more PhDs now than men, but they're not going into those STEM fields. Do you think that there needs to be a push that we need to encourage young women to start going into STEM fields? Is there, is there intervention that needs to be done to to get kids interested in, in these subjects?
3: Yeah, and I think within STEM there are differences too. I think women are dominant in biology, but not in uh, chemistry and physics, for instance. Hmm. So I think there's differences within the STEM fields also. Or women might be entering civil engineering, but not mechanical engineering or other kinds of engineering. So right. I think there are, there are gender differences within those dis- disciplines also. I think that women step out of those fields for a variety of reasons. One is the sexism that says that uh, smart women aren't as valuable as as i don't know what how how you want to phrase it but that men don't like women who are too smart or too successful that's uh, a common trope that we hear a lot i think
5: they're threatened
3: men are threatened and women if if heterosexual women want men they have to make sure that they don't uh, achieve more than the men do and then the other thing is that Men in those fields need to actually welcome women or they are hmm. inhospitable places. So women who have, who enter college trying to, wanting to go into STEM fields, so already have the background, the ability, the interest, leave at, in large numbers because it's such an inhospitable climate. Hmm. And then once you get into the job market, though, even the women who do survive the degree, will start in some of those professions and be driven out again by the harassment, by the, you name it, that happens once they're there.
1: And I've heard that that's also equally true for a lot of like minority students. And I've heard a lot this year on various like science podcasts that I like about how racism is, is really a big problem still in, in a lot of science fields, science jobs.
3: Well, can we just say for this whole conversation, this whole podcast, you you talking about the racism in those fields, and and you were asking about the legacy of slavery. Can we just name it? I mean, the big problem, the, one of the biggest problems this country has, is racism and white supremacy, and we we Ooh. just have not yeah. moved very much. We all we have done. You were asking about how do we make things better? Is it through laws? Is it through policies? We have to change these attitudes. We have to make these unacceptable. We have to, because if we, changing laws matters, changing policies right. matters. But there are always workarounds. There are always other ways to make the happen. Yeah. And if we don't deal with the underlying issues, all we're going to do is come up with new structures to, to contain the same problem.
5: Right. Mm, if yeah,
0: I'm hearing right. you. If I'm hearing you correctly, what I'm hearing is there's no replacement for punching a Nazi.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think Nathan, the, the, yeah, the the issue is Martin Luther King talked about, we cannot legislate matters of the heart. We we have to have you know some people say we need a heart transplant. How do we do that? How do you stop somebody from looking at me? I'm gonna pick on Andy here. How do you stop Andy? I'm picking on him because I know he's the least likely to think. How do you stop somebody like an Andy looking at Michael and saying, you're less than me. You're not as good as me. Or I want you taking the job a good white man should be able to have. And all these are ingrained, taught, handed down mentalities that we just have to break. And it, it, it is difficult. Even with women, uh, you know, we talk about women in STEM. I think women, correct me if you think I'm wrong, Maggie, have been socialized not to go into hard sciences. I remember when I was teaching algebra and, uh, um, my honors geometry, there were, I had like four girls in my honors geometry class, and the one girl was my top student. Everybody looked at her like she had the plague. Um, like you said, if, if you're not this demure, polite, Whatever little girl in a lot of ways, a lot of men are threatened by you. They don't want to be around or they think there's something wrong with you. You know, it's a socialization piece. And there are, there are a lot of, uh, I've seen camps and programs and things that have started to encourage women and people of color to get into STEM fields. But again, we've got to do something and I don't know what about these men who are looking at us like, you're taking my job. Right. White men have ownership of in, in everything great in this country.
3: Right, which gets back to Andy's earlier question about why do appeals for justice always come down to telling white men, straight white men, why this would be good for them? This is why. This is exactly <laughs> right. why. How are we going to yeah. stop straight white men and their supporters, because it's not just straight white men, from from spewing the racism and the sexism and making life hard for everybody else, if they can't see some reason to be better than that, and part of it, I I think I, I, I'm not a socialist, but I play one on TV sometimes. Um, part of the problem is our capitalist society that makes it everything a zero sum game. If we see somebody else getting ahead, we think it's at our expense. So, no, yeah. so no wonder if one group that you've never had to worry about competition from them before, you could always claim this and now they're claiming it. No wonder you're saying, Oh, hell no. And that's exactly what I think it has been happening in this country for, yeah. I mean, especially in the last couple of years, but for a very long time, we have to somehow change this zero sum mentality and say there is room for everybody. But we have no reason to believe that. And we have no reason to believe that because of the way that most of our social systems are structured. Look at school systems again. If we equalize funding, that has the net effect of taking funding away from the wealthier schools. Somebody does lose. How can we restructure things so that everybody gains? Until that happens, I don't see us not having scapegoats, whether the scapegoats are people of color or women or queers or any other group that you want to name.
0: There's that There's that quote that I love. Um, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression.
5: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And that, like, I feel like that is exactly what we're getting at here one of the things that made me fall in love with michael when we had our uh, black lives matter protest Aww. was he said something to the, the uh and i've said this myself in the past one of the best things you can do for racism a uh, racist is let them die um
5: and
4: i think uh, there's a lot of
0: yeah there's there's a lot of old racists out there that are gonna die but i think uh sort of like maggie uh uh Alluded to is we've seen over the last four years, racism has been normalized again.
1: Yeah, and well, where do you young people learn it?
0: Yeah, no, their racist grandparents need to die, but that's uh, it's clearly not going to take care of like the people that stormed the Capitol, for example. And there's there's a whole other problem. It's a bigger problem than I think, at least I realized, was out there.
4: I have to tell you these two really really quick stories. Well, when I was in college, back in the dark ages, one. I'm I'm escorting this girl to her dorm. My job was an escort in college. I mean, not a male male. escort. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was a male escort. (laughs) And I was walking this young lady from the library back to her dorm. And she keeps, you know, checking out my rear end. I'm thinking, you know, maybe she wants to play in the mud or something. I don't know. And she uh, finally she asked me, I have to ask you this. Uh, Do you really have a tail? Excuse me? She thought I had a tail. Her grandfather taught her that black men, the reason our butts are big and rounded is because we had tails and curled up inside. Oh. Night. She really <laughs> no. believed this. Is
1: very much not this. the direction I thought you were going with. That.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, wow. how, how do you? I mean, when you have oh, people God. that have this kind of mentality who look at you like a totally different kind of being. You're not even right there. i I was the only black math major at Wittenberg my freshman year, and people were looking at me like, "How are you in here? How black people can't do math? Black people aren't smart enough to do math they were, at, were would actually say this to me and because they were in such disbelief that I was sitting there in their calc three class or their differential equations class i mean they they just couldn't believe it. oh my goodness, that so still happens
3: to me. Close. In the last couple of years at my institution, I had um, undergraduates, uh, young Latina women who were who started out in um, sciences undergrad, and the people in the classrooms, colleagues, their peers, but also the professors. What are you doing here? This is not for Latinas. It's mm-hmm. so it is still oh, happening, and it's unbelievable. Well, right.
1: in our in our. Text chain, or I think maybe it was on Facebook, but Nathan's sister Lexi mentioned uh, that when she was in school, and this couldn't have been more than what 20 years ago, yeah, about that. So, uh, that her teachers in- taught her in the classroom as part of the instruction that in order to be president, you have to be 35 year old white male, <laughs> like that's part of the requirement. They, as a joke, wow. taught that, no, as a joke, as wow. no, as a, as a this is how it works. This is
4: factual. Yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, well,
0: it's, there were, there were a lot of white people where we went to school
5: and
0: it was not the most progressive area. So,
1: you know, and uh, whatever, I guess, you know, it, it all just sort of speaks to that. This stuff is not 200 years old. This is not in the past. This is all very much right now. I, I,
0: I think a lot of people, like a, a lot of white people don't want to talk about it because it's inherently uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. the best case scenario is that you lose some of your white privilege so that we can equalize things. You know, it's, it's easier for people to like stick their fingers in their ears and not think about these things. Um, but we, we like to think that we're further along than we are. And I can't like we we just aren't we like we we have actual audio recordings of slaves like people who were who were enslaved we we can listen to their stories
5: mm-hmm.
0: it wasn't that long ago
1: hmm. right but in the interest of time we do want to press forward with press the door. podcast well and also with fighting racism but you know
0: right uh, this is <laughs> this is for Michael uh, access to higher education for black students carries with it additional hurdles, such as predatory college loans and standardized testing. You worked for years as a high school guidance counselor. What insights can you share about the challenges young black students face when applying for colleges?
4: Well, uh, obviously the first thing is money. (laughs) I mean, not all of us are poor, but uh, like I said before, one third of African-American children are poor. Uh, So, it's a difficult situation. And, you know, as a counselor, I have to make parents understand that, uh, you know, th- there is financial aid out here. There's a possibility. You have to just make them believe it can't, can't happen. Then, uh, oh my gosh. The paperwork that it takes, we, you would not believe how many people don't want to uh, fill out the FAFSA. I ain't telling the white people my information because there's so much distrust and I understand where the distrust comes from. But there is so much. I have actually had to call and beg parents, go over to people's houses, say, please, you've got to give your child this opportunity because if you don't fill out this form, they are not eligible for anything. So So the distrust is a biggie. Finding the right college, that's hard because for a lot of African-Americans they are still today their first-generation college students. So they don't have this legacy of family having gone to this school or that school. You know, the people they have to ask about school is their teachers and counselors and principals, because they don't have a lot of people in their family who have attended college. So then, again, it becomes a trust issue. Oh, my gosh. I actually fell out with one of my colleagues at one point. This is not a (laughs) Cleveland Heights, because white man football coach who recommended this young man to Miami University. Now, this young man had a 2.1 GPA, which, you know, it's not horrible, but it's not Miami. He came from the projects in Springfield, and he was just in no way, shape, or form socially or academically ready for Miami. And I, I told the council this, but he was pushing them. He talked to the family. He got his hopes up. And they accepted him, of course, because of his athletic prowess. And he went there. And of course, they used him for a season, maybe two. And then he ended up back at the local community college. So I'm like, this is a shame. This man should be horsewhipped because he did not have this young man's best interest in mind. He allowed Miami to use them for his athletic prowess. So there are a lot of trust issues there.
1: I, I understand that on, on one hand, it's a valuable way for for students who wouldn't be able to access higher education to be able to get there through a- a- athletics, but there's a really strong perform for me or we'll cut you loose racism in there to me that uh, that you kind of just alluded to that like, yeah, all right, we'll let you... Get a side edu- an education as a side hustle, but your your job is to entertain us on the on the football field or the basketball court or whatever. Yeah. And ugh, but, it
4: just, is but worse. that but that exists everywhere in school. But my issue is, it didn't have to be in Miami. Have him go to a school mm. that was more appropriate for him. That first of all, go to a school where you could have gotten into if not for the athletic abilities, Mm -hmm. right? You know, so having kids be advised correctly. I mean, it was because of that incident. When I got to Heights, I'll never forget my first year there. Miami came in, they were looking for this young man, looking at this young man. He couldn't even pass at the time, the proficiency test. He I mean, he was, you know, we've worked hard. He ended up not even graduating. I knew just high school was a struggle for him. Why would you even look at Miami? So me and another black counselor, we jumped on Miami. We, we actually took the kid by the hand, led him out the office, closed the door, and we went off on Miami. It's said, shame on you,
5: for
4: even trying to recruit this young man. You see his statistics. You see what kind of student he is. You know he would not make it to Miami University. But you're just trying to use him. So, you know, you, you got a lot of that going. Advising kids in terms of settings. Like when I was going, looking at schools, I couldn't just go anywhere. I'm, 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 I'm a very traditional black man. I knew when I go, go to school, I would need some place where I could find hair grease, a barber. Uh, when my mama came down, she could go go get some greens, whatever, cooking for me. Uh, I wanted a place with a black church, with a black community around it. So that, and I wanted to stay in Ohio. So that, it's made most of the colleges there. But again, I, I was fortunate to have a counselor that would sit down and listen to hear my needs and match them up with the college that I needed to. So, so the question is, you know, what, what are the challenges? Again, finding somebody you can trust, <laughs> the financing, making sure you're not going to be used if there's an athletic issue there. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about this, and there's a lot to talk about, but uh, we do need to wrap up. I have one last question for you guys, which is, who's maybe the most important or influential or or just generally interesting educational advocates to you?
4: There is, of course, uh, Jawanza Kanjufu, who's one of our Black Intelligentsia. He wrote books like uh, To Be Popular or Smart, the Black Peer Group, that talks about us having to choose between going along with the crowd and, uh, or being the student that we can be and not, and being rejected by the crowd. I uh, also wrote the uh, conspiracy to uh, destroy black boys. Uh, Milana Karenga, who's a professor, used to be at least a professor at USC. Um, Carter G. Woodson, he's obviously historical. Him, W.E.B. Du Bois, they were phenomenal in the books they wrote that are still timely to date. Oh, one more, one Ron Ferguson. Oh, that's a, this is a bad brother. Ron Fer- Ferguson is <laughs> <laughs> like the, the, the nation's expert on the achievement gap. He actually did a study back in, I think the late 1990s about, uh, the achievement gap and he used Shaker Heights. And when the information came out in the Shaker community, they had a fit because yeah. you know they weren't all
1: didn't come out looking as clean as they thought they would.
4: would. Exactly, exactly.
3: One of my heroes is Anna Julia Cooper, who was a an African American woman. She was born into slavery at the at the tail end of the Civil War. She had that legacy, but she hadn't lived it for very long, I mean, her early youth. And she went to a normal school, which was the term for a teacher training institute. And she, she got married, and then she was widowed within just a couple of years. And then she ended up getting to go to Oberlin College. This was in the 1870s, maybe by now. And uh, she graduated from Oberlin with a bachelor's degree, and she got a job teaching in Washington, D.C. at the M Street School, which was the school for the term then, colored youth. And she worked her way up to becoming the principal there. She taught math and Latin, I think. I could be wrong about what she taught. And she was principal of the M Street School in the early 20th century during a time when Booker T. Washington's views of education held sway. And that meant a push for vocational education and not college prep. And she said, vocational education is fine, but we are not giving up college prep because we are not going to tell all this whole group of students that college is not an option for them. She got fired from her job for not just signing on with the all voc-ed program. Uh, eventually she got hired back, but she was never principal again. It, I also love her because she, she went through so much. Her brother and sister-in-law were, um, died in an accident and they had five kids and they all became hers. So on this oh, wow. single, you know, she was a widow. She had one income. She's raising these five kids. She's fighting over the curriculum to try to make sure that black kids in her school can at least have the chance of being, of going to college. And somewhere in there, she decides she wants a PhD. And this <laughs> is, you know, this is amazing. She has to. There there might be one or two places in the U.S. that would accept an African-American woman into a Ph.D. program. But they all had residency requirements and she couldn't leave her job and her job wouldn't give her um, permission for leave of absence long enough. And so she ends up going to school at the, pardon my terrible pronunciation, at the Sorbonne. She has to learn French well enough that she can write her whole dissertation in French. Oh Oh my lord.
0: Wow. And she
3: earns her, um, her PhD at the age of like 61 or 62 or something like this after she has been raising all these kids and doing all this work. And when she retired eventually from teaching at the M Street school, she then helped found a college for working adults who needed adult education, not a not a four-year college program. Um, so she founded this institute that was mostly for poor African-Americans in Washington, D.C., and she was uh, involved with that for years. She was 104 when she died. Can you imagine everything that she oh had God. lived through? I've taken a pilgrimage to see her house in D.C. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Oh, and, okay, wow. I know that I'm used up my time, but uh-huh. I'm going to give you a quote. This is her later describing her desire for education before she got to Oberlin. She said, I constantly felt a thumping from within, unanswered by any beckoning from without, meaning there was mm. no place that was welcoming her. And she said, the chance of the seedling is all I ask, the chance for growth and self-development.
5: Mm. Wow. Anna
3: Julia Cooper.
2: That's beautiful.
3: Isn't it, I just she has she published a book of essays called A Voice from the South in the eighteen nineties, where she takes on white feminist racism, but she also takes on black sexism. She takes on everybody. She's oh, that's
1: awesome.
3: Yeah,
2: definitely awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing. That's awesome.
3: Yeah,
1: Nathan, would you say that that was pretty a pretty precious story? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're you're uh,
4: terrible at transitions, but
1: yeah, sure. Yes. Um,
4: before before I, you guys make that transition. Yes. Okay, I want to share with you one quote, one little quote. My favorite yeah, it's the only
1: one you get. Okay, I have
4: <laughs> I, I have this uh, on my door in my office Nelson Mandela. Education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world. Awesome.
1: That is an awesome quote because. It works both ways, doesn't it? You can use you can use it as a weapon to improve the world or to hold the world back. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Yay positivity! I'm I'm trying. Uh. I'm trying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I can go first. Precious moments. I actually have two super short precious moments, and they're both about Myanmar, which is definitely. <laughs> a huge bummer right now because they had a a military takeover of their government but i'm gonna put two different videos in the doobly-doo uh the first video is of a pe teacher uh she does dancing uh online dancing with their students and she's made it a a regular thing but the thing is in her video that (laughs) she did uh on the day that the government was taken over she's uh sets up where she always does in front of this road and she's doing this, this cool dance and everything. And in the background of her video, you see the military cars going to take over the government. She just happened to get the overthrow of the government in the background of her cool dance video.
1: That's fantastic.
0: uh, Like Sarah and I were talking about the other day, like when was the last time you saw a news story that didn't have video associated with it? It just doesn't happen anymore. Like, (laughs) When I was a kid, sometimes when you would watch the news, they would have to like describe a thing that happened and then like show you like a picture of it afterwards. But now, like virtually everything, because we all carry cameras yeah. in our pocket, you see everything now. The other video, also from Myanmar, is uh, there are protests everywhere there. And uh, the military has been trying to crack down and the police have been trying to crack down. But the video I'm going to share is protesters being attacked by a fire hose by police and uh these police on the line deciding that they've given up and they go and they join the protesters and they use their riot shields to protect the protesters from the from the hose and it's amazing
1: yeah if only we had a few of those here
0: <laughs> yeah oh man it'd be nice
1: i'm just going to i just have one really i mean i have there's uh, so many things that I'm just going to mention, you should all, listeners, go check out Trump's resignation letter to the Screen Actors Guild. That's that's a riot to read through. What I want to bring up for my precious moment, and I'm going to share it so all of you can hear this, is a song written about Janet Yellen, the new... Uh, Secretary of the Treasury, the first woman Secretary of Treasury. She was also the first woman chair, uh, Fed Chair. Um, an artist called Dessa wrote a song called Who's Yelling Now?
5: Ooh, who's yelling
4: now? Who's yelling? Who's yelling now? Doves on the left, hawks on the right, cross-talk in the flock, trying to fight mid-flight. But here comes yelling with that inside voice, never mind the mild manner, policies make noise.
3: noise. She's five for nothing, but hands
1: to God. Anyway, that's just a couple seconds of it, but I don't want to that's spend it. all day right now listening to it. But, oh man, it's called Who's Yelling Now by Dessa, and it is a fantastic little song about one of my heroes. She's amazing and has been for a long time, but... <laughs> this song cracked me up so
2: well so this is uh probably not appropriate for m- precious moments um but it gave me a little bit of a chuckle so there's a youtube prank this one's probably too dark i should just switch to a different one <laughs> <laughs> i can deal with dark well so there's there's well, a do- t-
0: even if we don't include it you should at least tell us on the call about
2: it okay um so there's a youtube prank um, that people do somewhat regularly where it's like a, uh, they will surprise people and, uh, fake a robbery. It's all, they go through all the motions of a real robbery, but at the end they say, like, oh, here's your wallet back. It's just a joke. You were on camera. This really malicious prank. A terrible thing. You should never do this to people. Well, somebody this week did pull this prank him and his friend put on ski masks and approached a family with butcher knives. And he actually was shot in self-defense and succumbed to his injuries. Mm. And supposedly his dying words were, it's just a prank, bro. I mean, Um, I feel about as
1: bad for him as I do the woman with the don't tread on me flag who got trampled to death at the Capitol insurrection. Right. I, I, I mean, I don't, Rejoice at the loss oh of life goodness. ever, yeah. but if you're gonna go out and earn it like that, I'm not gonna feel that bad for you,
4: yeah, the first thing I thought of was somebody's gonna get killed like that
2: mm-hmm. uh well you were you were correct, somebody <laughs> did get that. killed um, no but in, <laughs> in other news i'm I'm looking at here it looks like Aunt Jemima has finally changed their company name and their uh logo, mm-hmm. so. Um,
1: hey racism is over
2: well i mean one of several steps that that gets taken uh i heard that cleveland is changing the the name of the indians so there's a lot of wheels that are turning of uh, these just like institutions that you never thought would change i never thought indians would change their name and uh a lot of that changes is now coming around I add, I
1: don't mean to poo-poo these sorts of changes. That that's really important. It's it's when, a
2: token it's a token change. I mean, it, it's not that important. But it is,
1: but when we are when when things like that are just left in such high public profile, it sort of gives a or at least a perceived green light, I guess, to to people to to harbor other you know racist feelings.
4: Oh, it desensitizes you. Mm-hmm. When I first moved down to Springfield. There was a restaurant there called Sambo's and I don't know if you know the story of ah. Sambo, you know, the tiger chased him around till he turned to butter or something crazy. But the, the logo on Sambo's was this dark, dark, like kid, like in black face, white eyes and huge red lips. I
3: remember that.
4: You remember that? Yeah. And I was like, for real? For, I mean, I don't think they were in Cleveland. I'm not sure. But I was just stunned at the fact that this was okay in Springfield to have this restaurant with this logo. I was stunned.
2: So yeah. Aunt Jemima is now Pearl Milling Company, for what
4: that's oh, worth. My precious moments was uh, be, be, being my last year in education in secondary. Or, yeah, it's a secondary school. I'm getting really reflective, and I think about all the students I've had over my years and how much I've loved and adored, most of them.
1: Especially this one.
4: Of course, of course, <laughs> especially. Um And I got tagged in a post yesterday on Facebook and one that, I mean, it almost made me cry. It's from a student who graduated in 2004, the year before you, Andy. Mm. Uh I guess I can say his name since it's on Facebook in public. It's Kenny Roberts. You remember Kenny? Eh, vaguely I wasn't yeah. uh, we crossed paths anyway he says this Black History Month I want to honor the men who have such a, who have had such a huge impact in making me the man husband the father and the friend that I am these men have modeled what faithfulness is what family is what walking with God is they have loved me disciplined me prayed for me and shown up for me and he lists seven men and I'm one of them
5: Oh,
4: Oh. Uh-huh. That's so sweet, and he had very a nice. team, a sweatshirt made with our names on it. Oh wow! wow. How Thank sweet! No freaking way! I love that. That's, that's awesome.
3: Sweet. Wonderful.
4: The North Carolina and hugging him. Hey, <laughs>
2: I feel like that's way better than my precious moment. But
4: oh, <laughs> we're not in competition here.
3: No competition.
0: Certainly <laughs> a little friendlier. Are
3: you ready for my precious moment? Yes, Please. very ready. This is a Tolstoy quote that I ran across. It was from a short story is the most important pursuit is making the person standing at your side happy for that alone is the pursuit of life. Mm. And I love that quote, but I also love the context in which I read that quote, which was a book on Buddhism about connection and how we are, how we're connected to everything and everybody. and. So this thing about the pursuit or making the person standing at your side happy isn't just about whoever our life partners may or may not be. It's whoever you're standing next to at this moment, whether it's your students or somebody at the grocery store. Or it's about giving your full attention to whoever you're standing next to and making them happy. And what would the world be like if we felt that Desire and obligation to everyone we happen to be standing next to. So that's my precious moment.
1: that that is definitely a strong ending, precious moment, (laughs) and certainly
0: the most sophisticated precious moment we've ever had.
3: (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry. I'll do better (laughs) next time if Uh, I if I'm ever through. That's that's fine. Just a couple weeks
1: ago, it was hey Trump has a button to get Coke. So
3: right, Exactly.
2: Diet Coke. Diet Coke. Uh, I I had a good chuckle at that yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh
0: anyway, I I just want to say Maggie, Michael, thank you so so
2: so so much. You guys Again. have been amazing. Thank you so much. This is
3: really fun. And Michael, thank you for sharing your stories. I loved hearing your stories. Thank you so much. I you, oh, that you. that was very personal and very vulnerable and beautiful and um important. So thank you.
4: I appreciate that, and I learned so much from you. I told Andy when he told me who else was going to be on the podcast. I said, "Oh, I'm intimidated now."
3: <laughs> oh, I hope, you, no. I hope that feeling didn't last for long.
4: No, not at all. You are very down to earth, very genuine, and I adore you.
0: If you feel intimidated, imagine how the three of us feel. There's <laughs> <laughs> right. you know reason we should be here at all.
4: Right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> oh, It was amazing. You both were awesome. A perfect panel for this topic. And I can't thank you enough.
0: And if I could say just one more thing, I just want to say um, I really need to come up with a catchphrase.
1: Uh, I hope that we gave everybody something to think about this week.
2: Uh, love you, bye. Love you, bye.
4: Bye. Peace <laughs> love and so Nice. So I thought you were going to like say Michael. soup soul train you're not (laughs) not holding up for that
2: hey guys did you know we're on twitter facebook and instagram come check us out we do contests memes hot takes and more we're also on patreon but the best thing you can do to support the show is please tell your friends link our episodes on social media and come say hi i run the twitter and i'm so lonely links in the doobly-doo love you bye
3: is your nickname known
1: uh, your
3: childhood nickname <laughs> not right?
1: particularly um but oh, you have to yes, say it but now. i'm
0: very excited now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just remember
3: andy it was your idea so, to get me on the show <laughs> right this is true
1: um <laughs> and to go ahead and just catch the listeners up here margaret nash is my aunt
0: there's a, there's no reason we should be able to have somebody on of, of her, her or michael's statue for that matter without like them, like owing you a favor,
1: or like <laughs> nepotism, right? I guess basically. <laughs> we'll take nepotism. Nepotism, right. hilarious. So, since I was a kid, uh, my name being Andy, I got, I guess some. I don't really know the story of how exactly this came about. I've heard several variations, so I don't know what's true. <laughs> but um, Andy Pandy or, or Panda <laughs> became kind of my um spirit creature (laughs) and and i mean so i mean i I definitely have leaned into it i mean pandas are are awesome creatures and i remember i did in in i think maybe fifth or sixth grade i did a report about pandas and they're awesome and they're cuddly and they basically lay around and eat all the time which is pretty much what i do so it works (laughs) out Um, (laughs) i'm sure that
0: I'm sure that nickname name will not come up in any future
5: episodes at all.
1: Probably not. I can't not imagine God. it would. If you, value, you know, I know where you live, Nathan.
5: <laughs> that is that is true. <laughs>